play and stay on Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Stand up paddleboarding, hiking, great restaurants and breweries. I'll tell you more about your next vacation destination later in the show. This is Your Last Meal. I'm Rachel Bell, and every other week I interview a celebrity about what their last meal would be, and then we take that food on a journey. We talk about the history of the food. We kind of go wherever the food takes us. And this week I am super-duper-duper crazy excited because the last meal we're about to dissect happens to be one of my favorite foods in the whole entire world. This is a food that is so special to me, so close to my heart, a food that is a part of a lot of my close friendships and a part of a lot of memories, a food that a lot of people associate me with, that I've actually allowed to become a part of my personality. No, I'm not talking about the taco. The problem is there isn't a good song about a burrito, but that is what we're talking about today, specifically the mission-style burrito from San Francisco. We'll talk about their history. We'll talk about how they came to America. I like to imagine them sailing over on a little boat with a little tortilla chip for a sail. And we'll talk about which burrito is statistically the best burrito in the nation. And that comes from an NBA-style burrito bracket that was done by the website 538. But first... We will talk about the woman who loves burritos as much as I do, our celebrity du jour, Mara Wilson. You probably know who Mara Wilson is, even if you don't think you know who Mara Wilson is. She played the little girl on Mrs. Doubtfire. Diarrhea forever. She was the star of Matilda. She was in Miracle on 34th Street. But Mara Wilson did her last feature film in the year 2000. She was 13 years old. And then after that, she did just a couple of teeny tiny roles. And then she completely disappeared from Hollywood. But Mara Wilson is back. She is a writer, which is something that she's always loved to do. And she just released her first book. It's a memoir called Where Am I Now? True Stories of Girlhood and Accidental Fame. Diarrhea forever. Mara has been out of the spotlight for so long. I was curious why she decided to come back into the spotlight and come out with this new book. Well, I think that I kind of wanted to take control of my own narrative in a way. I think that people, you know, when you disappear, people tend to wonder about you. But also, you know, I had been writing things for a while and I'd gotten attention for other things I'd written. You know, I had a play go up in the Fringe Festival. I had stuff appearing on McSweeney's, on Reductress, on Cracked, on a bunch of different websites. And I really wanted to write. And it was when I started talking about my life that I found people were most interested. And I'd been working on other books. I had, you know a young adult novel in the works. I had screenplays that I wanted to write. But this was really something that seemed to resonate with people. So in the book, you talk about how it was you, not your parents, who uh, wanted to get into acting when you were really little. What was it that excited you about it? What did, I mean, I always, when I see little kids who are great actors, I'm like, how do they know how to act when you're five years old? I loved playing parts. I loved, you know, singing and dancing and talking and just performing. I was I was always telling a story. And I think the storytelling aspect of it, the performing aspect of it definitely got to me. It definitely was something that I wanted to do. You know, I was always throwing myself in front of a camcorder. And you have to keep in mind that where we lived in Southern California, child acting wasn't uncommon. You know, it was like kids. It was like it was like softball for some kids, you know, or like the way that it is playing football in Texas or playing hockey in Canada, you know, it's so it didn't seem like a big deal. And then, of course, I got cast in a movie and that movie went on to become one of the highest grossing comedies of the 90s. Things snowballed from there. I was offered other parts and and, you know, I thought it would be fun. So I said yes, but I never really thought about where my career would go from there or how it would affect the rest of my life, because how could I? 
Why did you decide to leave acting? Well, I mean, part of it was that Hollywood didn't really want me anymore. You know, I, I didn't fit their perception of cuteness, but also I was kind of burned down on it. You know, I felt like being on the set could be tedious. And my mother had just died and I was very sad. And, you know, I was going through a lot. But I think that because of that, I definitely also kind of tried to hold on to it as long as I could just because it was a constant in my life. You know, it was definitely something that I thought I could hold on to. So I had this love-hate relationship with it for a long time before my career fizzled out. And I was like, you know what? I need to move on to other things. All right. So it's time to get to the main question. What would her last meal be? Um, so I have thought about this before because I'm morbid. Um, <laughs> I think that it would probably either be like... San Francisco style, uh, like mission burritos or something having to do with matzo ball soup and a baked good of some sort. I am obsessed. <laughs> I am obsessed with mission style San Francisco burritos. I'm from the Bay Area and I'm also Jewish. So the matzo oh, ball yeah. soup. What is your favorite burrito <laughs> in the mission? I like just really simple ones. I'm trying to remember the names of, of the one that we always go to. Uh, my sister lives in the Bay Area. There's one that we go to that's just... Uh, where they, they, there's like a mariachi band playing, and it's very, very simple. But, yeah, the mariachi band comes in and plays. Of course, I'm going to remember it as soon as we finish talking. Uh, it's, it's, there are so many good ones there. That's a great thing is you can go into any taqueria, and they're all going to be amazing. I think that San Francisco really reminds me of, of my childhood. And, you know, growing up in L.A., it's sort of a grass is greener thing. Everything seems better in Northern California. I mean, a lot of my favorite foods are things that are really big in San Francisco, sourdough bread and their chocolate. What is your favorite burrito? What do you want in that thing? Um, I think I just like to keep it simple. That's the thing. I'm not very experimental when it comes to food. I'm, I'm one of those super tasters and like anything even remotely spicy, uh, you know, makes me tear up. Honey mustard has made me cry before. It would probably just be black beans, Spanish rice. I love Spanish rice. And it's hard to find Spanish rice done Mexican style in New York. Uh, there's not a lot of good Mexican food in New York. There's amazing Puerto Rican, Dominican, you know, Spanish from Spain, but there's not as much good Mexican food. So, yeah, just black beans and guacamole. And that's another thing that, you know, another reason we don't have good uh, Mexican food here is because we don't have avocados like you do on the West Coast. So, yeah, just that guacamole, a little bit of salsa, um, light on the cilantro because I'm not a big cilantro fan. I think a little bit of it is good, but uh, too much just tastes like soap to me. I am officially breaking in tomorrow's last meal so we can learn a few quick things about cilantro. So if, like Mara Wilson, you also think cilantro tastes like soap, you are most likely genetically predisposed to dislike it. Hating cilantro is actually built into your genes. There were a couple of studies that were done recently that show that there are a few specific genes that are at least partially responsible for you thinking cilantro tastes like soap. You may have heard of 23andMe. This is the company who you send your saliva to and then they send you all of this data about your genetics and your ethnicity. So while analyzing the DNA of 30,000 people, 23andMe asked two questions. Number one, whether or not they liked cilantro. And number two, what they thought cilantro tasted like. And the people who chose the answer bubble bath all shared a genetic similarity in a cluster of genes that detect the smell of soap. Oh, and by the way, the U.S. and Canada are the only countries that call it cilantro. Everyone else in the world calls it coriander. We always have to be different. All right. Think that'll do it. Back to Mara and her perfect burrito. Uh, yeah, just whole wheat, you know, whole wheat burrito wrapped up. Very, very simple. Mara and I chatted a little bit more. We mostly talked about chocolate chip cookies, as you do. And then suddenly, my ten minutes was up. Hey, Rachel, we gotta we we gotta run. I'm sorry, okay. it's one o'clock. Okay, thanks, Mara. Right. I really appreciate it. Take care.
No, thank you so much. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. And that's showbiz, kids. 10 minutes means 10 minutes. Just as quickly as Mara came into my life, she was gone. And before we go any further, I want to make sure that all of you are familiar with what a Mission Burrito is. First and foremost, a Mission-style burrito is from the Mission District, or the Mission in San Francisco, which is basically the headquarters for amazing Mexican food. There's pretty much a taqueria on every corner. It is taco burrito nacho heaven. And the Mission District for many years has been a Latino neighborhood. Although the neighborhood has been taken over by punks and lesbians and artists, there's a street in the Mission called Valencia Street, which in the 70s and 80s was one of the most concentrated lesbian neighborhoods in the country. Lots of punk rock in the Mission, lots of art, amazing graffiti, and lots of big, bright, colorful murals. But like a lot of cool places and cities, the mission has been gentrified over the past couple of years. So now in between the Mexican grocery stores and the taquerias, there are these fancy hipster coffee shops and boutiques. But the mission district is still ground zero for some of the best burritos in the world, which we will tell you about after this quick break. Just a ferry ride away from Seattle is the Kitsap Peninsula, a land of gorgeous forests, sparkling water for kayaking and stand-up paddleboarding, and adorable seaside towns with locally-owned boutiques and family-owned restaurants. I have done so many day trips to the Kitsap Peninsula, wine tasting on Bainbridge Island, a girl's trip to Paul's Bow, ice cream and architecture in Port Gamble, watching the seals play from the beach in Port Orchard, and I still haven't seen it all. If you're like me and like off-the-beaten-path places where the locals vacation, you are going to love the Kitsap Peninsula. And this month, we're talking about Bremerton and Silverdale. So Bremerton is known as a naval town, and there are museums if you're into the big ships. But the restaurant scene has been really growing over the past several years. Grab a bowl of clam chowder or homemade lumpia at Bremerton's veteran-owned Axe and Arrow. And visit a land and gardens to see meticulously trimmed bonsai and a tree that has been around since 300 BC. Plan your visit. Go to visitkitsap.com slash meal. You can also find a link in the show notes. Play and Day on the Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. It was really important to me that I found the perfect voice of authority on burritos. Someone who knew the history, someone who knew about the culture, but somebody who truly loved burritos with all of their heart. And luckily, I found him. Gustavo Ariano is the editor of OC Weekly. He's the author of a syndicated column that I love called Ask a Mexican. And he wrote a book called Taco USA, How Mexican Food Conquered America. Can you just define the Mission Burrito, all of the characteristics that make it what it is? So the Mission Burrito, first and foremost, has to be humongous, like huge, 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 as as big as you could possibly get that's uh, readily available in the United States. And you also, it also has to be prepared like an assembly line. So they don't just make them for you in the back. They, you have to see it in front of you because you basically make it to order. So you put in your rice. It could be white rice or, you know, Spanish rice. It could be black beans or pinto beans. You put your salsa. You put your choice of meat. You put guacamole. You put sour cream. If you want to put cheese, that's fine. And the most important thing, you keep going down this assembly line. It, it's constructed in front of you. They wrap it up, they put it in foil, they might grill it on a press just for a little bit, and voila, there it is for you. You eat it, you keep it inside the foil because it just might explode, and you just, you know, uh, you take it off like petals from a rose. So you, you, know, you unwrap the foil slowly but surely. That is beautiful. I just cried a little tapatio tear <laughs> hearing that poetry. The foil really is so important, though. I think one of the keys to a perfect burrito is a very tight roll. And the tighter the roll, the better the texture, and the texture contributes to the flavor. A good burrito is a little bit complex. 
And there are many, many factors that go into creating the perfect burrito. And this is something Anna Maria Barry Jester knows very well. Anna reports on public health, food, and culture for the website 538. Her boss is Nate Silver, who is also burrito obsessed, and he wanted to find the best burrito in the country. So he asked Anna to drive around the country eating burritos and rate them. And I was following this very, very closely. And I actually almost felt angry that this wasn't my job. Even though Nate Silver has no idea who I am, I felt like he should know that I love burritos so much that this should have been my position, not Anna Maria Barry Jester's. When the um, bracket originally came out, I was hyperventilating and like, (laughs) who is this woman and how did she get to do this? Which I'm sure everybody said to you. Yeah, I did get a little bit of hate mail, (laughs) both out of why you and not me. And also, (laughs) you're wrong. A lot of that. (laughs) Yeah, there there are certain swaths of the country that are particularly um, particular about their burritos and had a lot to say about my my thoughts on them. So if you're confused about what a burrito bracket actually is, Anna explains. How many places did you go to? What was the criteria? We looked at thousands of burrito selling establishments that were available on Yelp. It was 67,000 <laughs> restaurants. We sort of generated this statistic to look at how well those burritos were rated on Yelp. And then we also brought in all these food experts to sort of bring in, you know, more local knowledge, not knowledge that doesn't necessarily get reflected on um, the internet. And then we called it down to 64 burritos and we did an NCAA style bracket that kind of represented the four regions of the country. So they were broken up into um, the Northeast, the South, the West, and then California was its own its own section as well. So a quarter of the, of the burritos were from each of those places. And then you drove around to 64 different burrito serving establishments. Indeed. So I went to all 64 of them and then I went back for round two (laughs) and to round three. So, you know, it went from 64 to 16 to four. Were you trying to do an apples to apples, a burrito to burrito comparison? Did you pick one kind of burrito to taste at each place? That was one of the hardest things for us is that that is obviously the most fair comparison. The other thing is that if you're doing a taste test, obviously it should be done side by side, but that was basically an impossibility just given the logistics. So what we decided was that we wanted to find the best burrito. So we went, I tried to eat the best burrito at each place. And in some places that was really clear what they were famous for, what people loved. You know, the online reviews were all about one thing. Other places it wasn't really clear what meat or filling was necessarily their best. And so I would try a few different kinds and kind of select my favorite and use that. So we tried to we tried to be comparing the best burrito at each establishment. You have a scoring system that you use. You had kind of categories that you were scoring each burrito in? Yeah. So we rated each burrito on a on a hundred points scale and it was broken into five parts. So 20 points for the tortilla, 20 points for the meat or the main protein, 20 points for the other ingredients, 20 points for the overall flavor profile, and 20 points for the presentation. We felt like um, that kind of you know, added up to what makes for a really great burrito. And what was declared the best burrito in the country and why? (laughs) The best burrito we named was La Taqueria in San Francisco. It's a mission style burrito. The reason La Taqueria won to me is that it has this sort of miraculous first bite. It's incredibly juicy and delicious and packed with flavor. And it's sort of like a food epiphany the first time you have it. And I thought that was just really special. So, you know, there are other burritos that I personally liked better. And, you know, I have other styles that I really like, but this is a really special iteration of a very particular kind of food. I just think it was really marvelous. 
I happened to eat at La Taqueria about three weeks ago now. Um, <laughs> and I usually go to Taqueria Cancun. That's always been my favorite since I was a teenager. But I just, I had one at Cancun. And then the next day I went to La Taqueria. And it really is an amazing burrito. Well, what kind of burrito did you have there? And what all is packed into the tortilla? Yeah. So, um, you know, it's funny because I'd also been to Taqueria Cancun most of the time before I um, before I started on the burrito bracket. And I love Tuckery Cancun. They have these great vegetable burritos, which is it's really hard to get a good veggie burrito. That's what I get there too. It's funny. I get meat everywhere else, but at Cancun, I always get the veggie. Oh, that's so funny. Um, yeah, it's just really delicious. So anyways, but La Tuckery, it's, um, it's just super juicy. And I've actually eaten just about every meat that they have there in the menu. In fact, I'm sure I've eaten every meat. Gosh, I'm trying to even remember which one we ended up <laughs> going with. I think carnitas was the one that um, I maybe chose as my favorite, but it'd be hard for me to choose a favorite of the meat there. It's kind of like whatever you like best. Um, they also do this thing where they you can get the burritos griddled. And they have like a secret menu there. And so they, they're called dorados and you can, you know, they'll grill it all the way around. It like really locks in all the juices and just makes it a little bit crunchy on the outside. So the bites are really amazing. But it's really about the liquid, which is something I think a lot of places that make burritos don't pay enough attention to. A dry burrito is really hard to get through. And these are so juicy that you can eat the whole thing even though they are pretty massive. Yeah, that is my thing as well is I like it to be super mushy inside, which I know a lot of people don't like. But that's what I like about mission style burritos is that I feel like the beans and the rice and either avocado or at La Taqueria, I like their guacamole and the sour cream because you have to do the super burrito and the cheese. And I feel like it all just squishes together. And, you know, you can taste the individual parts, but it's just like a kind of a mess, which is what I like about it. La Taqueria scored 98 points out of 100 on her burrito bracket. Anna says no other burrito came close. And technically, La Taqueria beat out 67,000 other burrito-serving establishments. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, the history of the burrito. If you like listening to Your Last Meal, you might like watching my new TV show, The Nosh with Rachel Bell. We just wrapped up season one, so there are four tasty episodes ready for you to binge at CascadePBS.org. In episode one, I convince an East Coast skeptic that Seattle now has fantastic bagels. And in the season finale, we go truffle hunting just about an hour outside of Seattle. Episodes are a quick bite just eight and a half minutes long. So grab a snack and cozy up with the nosh. Available anytime, anywhere at CascadePBS.org or find a link in the show notes. All right, we're back with Gustavo Ariano, who wrote the book Taco USA, How Mexican Food Conquered America. And he's going to set the record straight on the history of the burrito. I've been saying the wrong thing about burrito history for years. I don't know where I heard this, but I just made up that the burrito was invented in San Francisco and I was very smug about yeah. it. And then I've been reading otherwise lately. And so I need you to set the record straight, basically. Sure. <clears throat> Let's do it. Just starting at the beginning, what is the history of the burrito? Was there somebody or some place that invented it? There's a lot of myths surrounding the burrito. Everything from that vendor in El Paso during the Mexican Revolution would sell food inside of a flour tortilla and would write a burrito, so they called it a burrito, to miners in Sonora or Arizona uh, taking their food for the day, kind of like the Cornish pasty, wrapping it in a flour tortilla. And again, it's always a burrito, taking it down to the mines in a burrito. But no one really knows. I mean, more, more importantly, what can be verified is that the burrito 
comes from northern Mexico, or more more specifically the borderlands, Arizona, Mexico, uh, Sonora, Chihuahua, Texas. So it was it was invented somewhere along that line because that's where flour tortillas are indigenous. They exist no historically they exist nowhere else in Mexico except there. Because all other parts of Mexico they only ate corn tortillas. Is that right? Yeah. Oh well, I mean also bread. Well, you know that, that's another hidden history: the popularity of bread across Mexico. But yeah, corn tortillas have always been dominant in the rest of Mexico. It was only flour tortillas, which is a wheat-growing region of Mexico, where uh, in northern Mexico, where flour tortillas reign supreme. And of course, that's why in the United States, flour tortillas have always sold far more than corn tortillas. So, what do you imagine the first burritos were like, as far as the size and what was in them? Well, what was in them, of course, is meat. Because in northern Mexico also, that, that's one of the big beef-producing regions of Mexico. And Carne de Machaca, uh, you know, Chile Colorado, maybe if you go out to, you know, Nuevo León, Arachada, well, you know, fajitas, for lack of a better term. So it was definitely beef. It was, you maybe some fillings of rice and beans. But most importantly, these burritos were small. In fact, the first burritos to come into the United States, you could date that going back to the 1930s through the 50s. They were all small little burritos. And so when did they first make their way into the U.S.? And was it first in California or Texas? It's interesting because the first mass consumers of burritos were braceros. These were the Mexican immigrants who were contracted by farmers uh, through an agreement with, between the United States and Mexican government to come into the United States and pick the crops during the four, from the 40s right up until the 60s. In my book, Talk to USA, I talk about how these uh, the farmers, they were trying to be nice and they thought, oh, hey, Mexicans like beans and rice and tortillas. And if we wrap it into these burritos, they'll eat them. But the braceros hated it because a lot of them were not familiar with that food. They were not familiar with this Mexican food. It's like, you know, imagining you're someone from New England in the 1920s and all of a sudden you're dropped into Hawaii and you have to eat all that food. Even though it's technically American, you're like, what the hell is all this? So the original burrito was most likely some kind of stewed meat in a homemade tortilla. Just kind of a little snack size thing. So how did the Mission Burrito become so bohemoth? The very first Mission style burrito was at a place called El Faro. It's still in the Mission District. It's near a fire station. And the fire station, is, this is key to remembering the story. So it was invented by an immigrant from Mexico named Febronio Ontiveros. And if he was from the state of Durango in northern Mexico, so he was familiar with burritos. So by the time he opens up this restaurant in the Mission District in the early 1960s, he's selling burritos. One day, a bunch of firefighters come in. This is how he tells the story. A bunch of firefighters came in. They said they were hungry and that uh, those small burritos that he sold wouldn't do. So he said, come back the following day. I'll, I'll think of a, you know, I'll, I'll make a bigger burrito for you guys. So at first, he combined two flour tortillas then just spread ingredients across the two flour tortillas and then folded them. And these firefighters supposedly liked it so much and made enough business for him that he decided to go to a tortilla-making factory and ask them to make bigger tortillas. And the big, huge flour tortillas are actually a staple of uh, northern Mexico, Sonora, but in those days, they just weren't made. They were small. You know, when I was doing my book, Taco USA, I thought, oh, this has to be an urban legend. So when I went out to research El Faro, which is still there, it's still alive, thankfully gentrification hasn't taken away just yet but and i thought there can't be a fire station around here and lo and behold i think it's maybe a block maybe two blocks away but easily within walking distance there is a fire station talk about how burritos moved nationwide from the west coast and from the southwest uh, the united states have, has been eating burritos now a good 60 years you know once we started having these taco empires like you know up in the northwest taco time then you have del taco you have 
Taco Bell, and you know, they, they all sold burritos. But burritos really didn't explode until the 1990s, and it was because of Chipotle. You have a guy named Steve Ells who studies at the Culinary Institute of America in San Francisco. Late nights go get his mission burrito, goes back home to Denver, wants to open up a fancy restaurant, but thinks to himself, I think I could make uh, some money to fund my restaurant by opening up a burrito stand selling those mission-style burritos. And, you know, the rest, as they say, is history. So, you know, what eaters know as Chipotle, that's basically an approximation of taquerias in the Mission District. It, what they make you is a mission burrito. And Chipotle, of course, opened specifically in college towns where historically, if you're a college, you know, poor college student, you go, you get pizza, maybe hamburgers or a, a hoagie, and you still do that. But now all of a sudden you have a new meal. The burrito. I feel like a lot of people talk about pizza as far as having regional differences. You know, there's New York mm-hmm. style pizza in Chicago. I feel like the same thing exists for burritos. People just don't talk Absolutely. about it as much. I mean, my family lives in San Diego, and before they moved down there, I'd never had a chili relleno burrito before, uh-huh. which is so awesome. I love that. And uh, the carne asada fries. Can you talk a little bit about some of the regional differences of burritos? Yeah, absolutely. No, and the reason people don't know much about regional styles is because the the Mission Burrito has been so prevalent in dominating, almost monopolizing burritos taste. But of course, you know the center the center of burrito culture is California. We talked about the Mission Burrito. Then you go down to Los Angeles. People don't know the most popular burritos in Los Angeles as an LA burrito. They just call it a burrito. It's what you folks in, in San Diego would call a carne asada burrito. For us, it's just a burrito. It's mostly meat, uh, maybe some beans and rice, but it's usually mostly meat. Then you have the older style burrito, which I call the Chicano burrito. That's going to be just your beans and cheese. And you, you only find those nowadays at like in Boyle Heights in East Los Angeles. It's this classic old school burrito. And they, they use like this chalky flour tortilla and they cook the beans like even though they're refried, it's almost like a soup, and it's amazing because you bite into this burrito, and it's almost like it's almost like a burrito porridge. But it's just oh god, it's just so amazing, and they put they put like a chili sauce on it. It's absolutely great. And again, the closest approximation to that is the Del Taco Bean and Cheese Burrito. So if you're able to find it somewhere, you know where, where, wherever listeners may be, try it. San Diego's most famous for the California burrito. So it's basically what I would say a carne asada burrito. So your beans, your rice, uh, you know, some cheese, and then you stuff French fries into it. I'm actually surprised no one has really started pushing that to college towns because that more in some ways more than the mission burrito is perfect college food. Then you go to uh, Arizona. That's the home of the chimichanga. So that's a fried burrito. You go to New Mexico, that's the home of what the rest of the United States would call a wet burrito, but they call it a smothered burrito, so a big burrito on a plate, and then it's covered in red sauce or green sauce or both sauces. Then you go to Denver. There they have something called the Mexican hamburger. In my book, I called it the greatest dish in the United States. A Mexican hamburger is essentially a smothered burrito covered with Denver-style chili. Inside, the classical one has chicharrones, so pork rinds, and a hamburger patty. What? <laughs> it's amazing. I have to oh, try yeah. that. That's amazing. You, you look at it, it looks like vomit. It is amazing, though. The most famous restaurant to sell is a, call, is a place called Chubby's, uh, with no apostrophe, just Chubby's, C-H-U-B-B-Y-S, Chubby's. But then a very underrated burrito that I don't think will ever get out of the city limit or the, uh, the region of El Paso, you, and that's actually how burritos are, are eaten in many parts of northern Mexico. You would just say a burrito de guisado, so a burrito with stew inside. So if you go to El Paso, there the burritos are slender, they're small, and they make them in front of you, but it's only one ingredient, and it's whatever stews right in front of you. So these restaurants, they'll have like 
say, 10 different stews. You have a, like, a goat stew, a beef stew, green chili stew, uh, my favorite, burrito de weenie, so hot dog stew. They just make hot dogs right there, a hot dog stew for you. Wrap it up. You get two of them. It's absolutely amazing. But at this point, it's too small for American consumers. They'll dismiss it as, eh. It's lame. It doesn't compare to the Mission Burrito, which I think is a damn shame. I can't even tell you how satisfying this is to me. After so many years of being obsessed with burritos, I just mostly shoved them into my face. And I never really took the effort to figure out where they came from. So thanks to Mara Wilson. I know the history now. You know the history now. I think knowing the history actually makes food more interesting and more fulfilling when you eat it because you know where it came from. So thank you, Mara. But there is one thing that she said when describing her burrito that kind of tripped me up. Just whole wheat, you know, whole wheat burrito wrapped up. Very, very simple. Whole wheat tortilla? Diarrhea forever. I've never seen a whole wheat tortilla in the mission. And that sounded more kind of like a um, healthy California, in quotes, style burrito or like a wrap or something. Have you ever encountered a whole wheat tortilla? I don't. I definitely didn't encounter any whole wheat. There were whole wheat tortillas on the burrito bracket. There were a couple of places that had like flavored tortillas. And I that's not my favorite thing. And I can't quite imagine a whole whole wheat tortilla having the same qualities. I know because the thing that's so great about the tortilla, (laughs) they steam them and they get that kind of velvety elasticity that I can't imagine a whole wheat tortilla being able to have. Exactly. Yeah. The texture is so important. And like, especially in the California burritos, like you're, you're basically vacuum sealing as much contents as you can into this, (laughs) into the, you know, the gluteny, glutinous tortilla. And so, I, yeah, I can't quite imagine how that would work with the whole wheat. But now you've made me curious and I'm I'm going to go have to hunt this down. Authentic or not, it doesn't matter because that was Mara Wilson's last meal. And if she wants a whole wheat tortilla, by golly, she's going to get a whole wheat tortilla. Mara Wilson has a new memoir out right now. It's called Where Am I Now? You should totally read it. I want to thank our burrito experts, OC Weekly's Gustavo Ariano and 538's Anna Maria Barry Jester for being on the show, of course, but mostly for making me want a burrito so badly. I'm about to buy a plane ticket to California just to quench this craving. Thanks to my producer, Aaron Mason. Original music by Prom Queen. And this is still a pretty new podcast. So if you happen to like it, I would so appreciate a rating or a review on iTunes. That would really help us out a lot. It'll get more people to listen and then I'll be a millionaire, probably. I'm Rachel Bell. And until next time, this is your last meal. 